joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The Summons of the Word, found in your bulletin, prepares our hearts and minds to do just that. Let's read it together. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This morning's scripture reading is from Ezra chapters 3 and 4. Once again, Ezra 3 and chapter 4. I'll start with chapter 3, verse 10, and read through chapter 4, verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by King David of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts and joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thank you, Kirk. I'm going to begin this morning, and I'll, I'll make my comments brief, given the time that we have here. Uh, I want to begin this morning with a controversial social and political issue, and I'm going to ask that you would just give me a chance here, so stick with me uh, a little bit. Um, on February 3rd, 1994, just over 25 years ago, a small-framed, bent-over, elderly nun was asked to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. Kids, do you know the name of this nun? She wasn't an American. She was of Albanian descent. She was born in 1910, back in the days of the Ottoman Empire. Isn't that amazing? In her early years, her imagination was captured by the stories of faithful Christians giving their lives in sacrificial service to the crucified and resurrected and reigning Jesus. And at age 12, she decided that she wanted to do the same. And she did. She gave her life daily on the streets of Calcutta. At the prayer breakfast in 1994, at the age of 84 years, isn't that amazing? She spoke with President, with Bill, with President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore on her right and left. And she spoke 
on abortion. She said, how do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? Now, what would you expect her to say? Maybe some of us who are conservative would say, well, we expect a Supreme Court decision. In fact, just look at what's happened in the last couple of days. That seized the opportunity. Some of us would say, we need to vote in a pro-life president in office. What is her answer? How do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? That's not anything that I just said. That's not what she says. This is what she says. As always, as always, we must persuade her with love. And we must remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. Jesus gave his life. Jesus gave even his life to love us. Now, immediately following her speech, President Clinton was, was scheduled to speak. And you know what he said? What he said were, I thought, were some incredibly insightful words. He said simply this. He began this way. It's hard to argue with a life so well lived. It's hard to argue with a life so well lived. My question that I want to ask you this morning is, what if our purity, what if our purity in the long run is more powerful than our politics? What if our purity is more impactful than any political power? Further, what if the power of his word is greater than the powers of this world? So I think that's what Ezra 3 and 4 are asking us this morning. It's not easy, it's not an easy text for me, at least for me to interpret. And I'm not going to pretend like I've got all the, the answers to the narrative here. But let me, let me just, I just want to approach it this way. Last week, as we covered chapters 1 and 2, we learned this, a very simple idea, that God's power calls us to purity. And why is that? Why is it that God's power calls us to purity? Because God has power, according to Ezra 1 and 2, God has power over princes and presidents. We read this in chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. See, according to Ezra, behind the political machinations of Cyrus, and by the way, if you know anything about King Cyrus, it's unbelievable. I mean, his rise to power in the ancient Near Eastern world was, was as one, uh, as one uh, historian put it, astonishingly rapid. 20 years prior, he was like a, a vassal king in sort of nowhere's, nowheresville. And just he, with a meteoric just rise to power, he, 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 um, he takes over. And just a phenomenal politician, phenomenal uh, uh, maneuver of, um, of political and military might. But here in Ezra, there's this claim made that behind all of the, the machinations, all of the plans, all of the political mastery of this fox Cyrus, behind all of that, is Israel's God at work? And the question is, do you believe that? Do we believe that? 
Is it possible that God is in and in and in, in, in present uh, through all that is going on in politics, regardless of Joe Biden wins, regardless of President Trump wins, regardless that God is at work accomplishing his purposes? I don't know how many of you know this much about the, the, uh, the house church movement in China. But one of the things that the Chinese government, the communist Chinese government did, was they, they allowed these little house churches to exist. But they said, you can't have more than 25 people in your house church. And so do you know what happened? A house church will get to 25 people. It'll get to 26. And what does that mean? You would have to split. So instead of one church, you had two churches. And then those 13 people would suddenly become 25. And then 26, and they would have to split again. And unwittingly, unwittingly, the Chinese government became this church planter. <laughs> As these cells of churches, oh, 25, got to split. Oh, 25, got to split. And they're just, just, just amazing, just spreading like wildfire. If you read a wonderful book called God is Back, written by some former, chief, former head uh, um, editors of the, uh, senior editors of the, um, the Economist. These are men who are ones, I think, nominal Catholic, there's atheists. But it's called God is Back, and its basic premise is that right or wrong, good or bad, religion is back in the world. That on the whole, even as the West has somewhat experienced some measure of decline or at least polarization in religion, that on the whole, the world is becoming vastly more religious, and it starts by with this amazing story of these, these, of these incredibly well-educated 20-somethings in Hong Kong, meeting, gathering together on an evening to do what? Read through the book of Romans, because God is at work through all manner of princes and presidents, regardless of their allegiance. And if that's the case, if he really is at work, if God really does have power over presidents and over princes, he calls his people, says chapter 2, to focus on purity. And as these exiles are returning with so little at their disposal, just basically recovering, so few of them returning, they focus first and foremost and saying, hey, look, are we the heirs of Abraham? Are we, are we, those, whom, are we, are we those who are descendants of the promises of God? So again, this basic idea is simple. It's that God has power over presidents and princes. And we see that actually in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 15 and 16, if you know the story of Exodus, where when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and of course Pharaoh says, no. And in one exchange between Moses and Pharaoh, there are multiple exchanges. Listen to what God says to Pharaoh. Are you ready for these words? God says, by now, Pharaoh, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What if Ezra, Exodus and Ezra invite us to consider the question that what if the powers of this world are mere pawns in the palm of the one who is the Prince of Peace? What if, as Proverbs 21 one says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord? He directs it like a channel of water wherever he pleases. I don't know if you kids have ever done that. You've gotten some water on the table, and, and it's, it's there, and you kind of like, you play around with it, or you spill some water, and you can use your hand, and you can kind of guide the water where it goes. It's exactly what God does. The heart of the king is in the hand 
of the Lord. Acts 4, verse 27 says this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, O God. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. There we go. Every single one of them, God was luring Herod, luring Pilate, luring the Roman empires to fulfill his purposes. What, what a bunch of idiots, right? What little did they know. Is that really true? I mean, is it really true that God has power over princes and presidents? And if it is true, is it, is it true that God's power frees? Is it true that that power then, then frees God's people to pursue what's really important to live a life of purity? What can, what can one say against a life so well lived, says President Clinton? Now listen. This is very important. God's power calls, frees God's people to a life of, of purity, not a life of superiority. There's a big difference. It wasn't to be better. I mean, they were exiles. They had, they had been kicked out of the land because of generation after generation after generation of moral failure. They were no better than anybody else. This morning, I want to take a few minutes and just ask the question, what does purity look like? Well, we're going to look at three and four, but we're going to look at three. I can do it in a few minutes, so please just be patient with me. What is this purity to which God's people are called? What is this purity that we are to pursue because there is one who has power over princes and presidents? But first, that purity looks like pursuing peace with God. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Isn't that beautiful? We see the exiles coming together. How as one? There's a unity. There's a solidarity. There's a, con- a unity of a vision. In verse 2, Then Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Here we see God's people gathering together, and it's the first thing that we have to do is have an altar so that we can be at peace with God, so that we can place sacrifices on there, so that we can praise him, so we can worship him, so that whenever we sin, we can, we can give offerings. It is, we are prioritizing, we are pursuing peace with God. We're not pursuing political power. We're not pursuing all manner of exploits of various kinds. We're not pursuing economic gain. We are pursuing living at peace with God. And we're going to do so in a manner that is according to his precepts. Look there in verse 2 again. It says, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Listen, Christian, are you pursuing peace with God? Are we? Are we, are we just so consumed in our Facebook feed, just, just so consumed with politics? Who's going to win? Who's going to be the next Supreme Court justice? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? Or are we following the example of an Albanian nun? A life of purity. A life that is just focused on living at peace with God. Are we being selective with his precepts in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God? Are we simply picking and choosing? We show up at church on Sunday and we, it's, like a, it's sort of like a smorgasbord. It's sort of like an all-you-can-eat buffet and we just sort of pick what we like out of God's word and we neglect other things. 
See, how, it looks like pursuing peace, uh, excuse me, pursuing God looks this way. It looks like doing it in a manner, are you ready for this? Verse 3, regardless of the opinions of other people. Look at verse 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Despite the fear, or fear of peoples around them, let me ask you, how are people's opinions keeping you or keeping us from pursuing a life of purity? Family members, parents, siblings, I'm so scared of living a life of purity. I'm so scared of, do, of saying the right thing, saying the hard thing, because it will mean that there will not be peace in my family. I would rather have peace in my family, peace, than peace with God. I'd rather have peace in my classroom, peace, peace in my, my, my workplace, than peace with God. So purity looks, one, like pursuing God, pursuing peace with God according to his precepts, regardless of the opinions of other people. But it also looks second, like purity looks like passing through this world as a pilgrim. It looks like passing through this world as a pilgrim. Look at verses 4 and 5. We read this, Then in accordance with what was written, see there's a sense of just complete conformity to God's word, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And then they generalize. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, etc., and speaks of how they reestablished the cult. But I want to focus on the verse, verse 4, where this speaks of they celebrated the festival of tabernacles, or what's called the festival of booths. And the festival of tabernacles was this annual festival where God's people would literally build these tabernacles, build these little booths, these little tents, and they would live in them. And why, would, why on earth would they do it? Why would they leave their house? and build this, this tent or this tabernacle, this booth, because it was to recall their life of pilgrimage, their leaving of Egypt, and their going to the promised land. It was this very powerful, very concrete way of saying that this world is not my home, that I have purposely left the political and social structures of this world. I have, they are not native to me. They're not where I'm going. I am passing through. The Feast of Tabernacles was about letting go of all the things that we hold so dearly. My health, my youth, my social connections, my financial status, my vocational talents, all of the things that we will one day let go of whether we want to or not. They're all going. And he was saying, where am I going? What am I headed for? Purity looks like passing through this world as a pilgrim. All of us are reminded that as we've been grieving the, de- the loss of Steve Ohlendorf, grieving with the Ohlendorf family, we're reminded that we, this world, we cannot hold on to anything, that at any moment, at any time, we just have no idea. And will I build my life accumulating popularity, accumulating status, accumulating emotional intimacy, accumulating all of these things that we run after, only to realize that it's all going to be gone. See, when we approach life as pilgrims, we're able to love in costly ways. Well, I'm going to lose this anyway, so I'm going to give it away now. I'm going to lose this anyway, so it's not that big of a deal. 
I'm just here, I'm here today, and I'm gone tomorrow. Our lives are a passing breeze, and so I'm just going to lay it out there. I'm just going to give myself to the Lord. Purity, so purity looks like one pursuing peace with God according to his precepts, prioritizing praise and worship in our lives, a real relationship with him. Why? Because God has power over the political powers. I'm going to pursue purity. I'm, going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to pursue peace regardless of the opinions of others. And I'm going to pursue purity because I'm just passing through this world. Just passing through as a pilgrim. And finally, let me say this. Purity looks like prioritizing the public praise of God's people. Look at verse 7. As Kirk read for us. Then, that is the God's people, then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord were laid. Listen, are we prioritizing the public praise of God's people? Are we meeting together? There is something incredibly powerful. When we know each other's lives, when we know each other's stories, when we hear about the witnesses to God's grace, just like Michelle so beautifully shared with us, when we hear those stories, we realize we are together. We support each other. And we come together on a Sunday morning, whether it's via live stream, whether it's in person, whatever it may be, but we are committed to the community of faith. Guys, there's probably no greater way today that the world has influenced the church than by saying that every one of us can do whatever, whatever we want to do. There is nothing more deadly, nothing more deadly than staying on the throne of our own hearts. To prioritize the public praise of God's people, to prioritize the community of faith, to give your allegiance first and foremost to the Lord and then to the body of Christ, not to me, not to Jim, not to Ron, not to Good Shepherd Presbyterian, not to Presbyterianism, not to a certain theology, but to give yourself to a certain people, a certain group of people to say, I am here and I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to pray for you. We are here together to make this journey together. That is so profoundly un-American. And we're missing out. We're missing out, gang. To actually say, you know what? I'm going to give all my time, my energy, my money to the public worship, to the public gathering of God's people. For us all to do that. Oh, the joy, the laughter. Isn't it just beautiful? Truth be told. Just beautiful hearing God at work in someone's life through their weakness, through their struggle. Don't you want more of that? Don't you want our small groups to be like that? 
Don't you want our interaction with one another? Don't you want to just say, hey, come to my house, or come, let's, let's start a restaurant, or let's talk on the phone. I just want to hear, tell me about your life. What's going on? And to see God's praise, God's presence in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of the challenges, because he's really here, and he's really at work. And then we learn and we listen, and we know how to love each other. It's a beautiful thing. So let me ask again, if it's true that God has power over princes and presidents, if it's really true, it frees us to pursue purity, even at great cost, even when it's unpopular. Let me close with these few words here. Beautiful words are all written by a pastor, a pastor hero of mine. Has done, did a lot of work um, in very difficult circumstances in New Orleans. Um, he says this, Let Herod have his say. Let Caesar seize your pay. On jubilation day, they will kiss your feet of clay. As for me, I'll choose to stay, waiting, waiting, till he takes my soul away. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, the powers of this world, they're going to do their thing. Let them take your money. Let them do whatever. I'm committed here, staying, pouring out my life until he takes my soul away. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at this tiny little, this little gathering of exiles, Lord, we can relate to them, Lord. It just seems sometimes that the world has passed over your church. It seems that somehow that Father, the, the, all that matters is just everything but the church. And yet, Lord, it's just as we look back to look at these people 2,500 years ago. Father, no one is thinking about Cyrus. No one's thinking about Persia. No one's thinking about those who just are, are doing all the, import, all the important things, who are, are the important people. Father, no one has remembered them. Father, truly it's amazing to think that historians know so little about this time frame. In fact, what they do know is simply from Ezra and Nehemiah that this is all that is remembered from that era. That's an amazing thing. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us such a confidence in your power, the power over princes and presidents, that it would free us to pursue, to prioritize what is really important in our lives, to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good, to walk together in humility and in weakness and in failure and struggle, and to find that through our weakness, we will see your power. We will see your goodness. We will see your grace. We will see your glory. So, Father, please, would you be at work among us? Would you show us how deadly loneliness and choice are? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.